Awesome. All right. So today we're going to read Exodus chapter 13 and chapter 14. We're going to follow the narrative after um, the Passover night and what comes from the events thereof. And so whenever you're ready, go ahead and start chapter 13. Consecration of Firstborn. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, Consecrate to me every firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the Israelites, whether of human being or beast, belongs to me. Moses said to the people, Remember this day on which you came out of Egypt, out of a house of slavery. For it was with strong hand that the Lord brought you out from there. Nothing made with leaven may be eaten. This day on which you are going out is in the month of Abib. Therefore, when the Lord your God has brought you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Grigashites, the Hivatites, and the Ubeusites, which he swore to your ancestors to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you will perform the following service in this month. For seven days you will eat unleavened bread, and the seventh day will, all, will also be a festival to the Lord. Unleavened bread may be eaten during the seven days, but nothing leavened and no leaven may be found in your possession in all your territory. And on that day, you will explain to your son, this is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It will be like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead so that your, the teaching of the Lord will be on your lips. With a strong hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. You will keep the statute as it is appointed time from, at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord, your God, has brought you into the land of the Canaanites, just as he swore to you and to your ancestors and gives it to you, you will dedicate through the Lord, every newborn that opens the womb and every firstborn male of your animals will belong to the Lord. Every firstborn of a donkey, you will ransom with a sheep. If you do not ransom it, you will break its neck. Every human firstborn of your sons, you must ransom. And when you and your son, and when your sons asks, and when your son asks you later on, what does this mean? You will tell him, with a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, the firstborn of human being and beast alike. That is why I sacrificed to the Lord every male that opens the womb, and that is why I ransomed the firstborn of my sons. It will be like a sign on your hand and a band on your forehead that with a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. The deliverance of the Israelites from Pharaoh and the victory at sea. Now, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not, did not lead them by way of the Philistine, Philistines' land, though this was the nearest. For God said, If the people see that they have to, fly, to fight, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. Instead, God rerouted them towards the Red Sea by way of the wilderness road, and the Israelites went up 
out of the land of Egypt and arrayed for battle. Moses also took Joseph's bones with him, for Joseph had made the Israelites take a solemn oath, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you must bring up my bone or bring my bones up with you from here. Setting out from Sukkoth, they camped at Ephem, near the edge of the wilderness. The Lord preceded them in the daytime by means of a column of cloud to show them the way, and at night by means of a column of fire to give them light. Thus they could travel from both day, by both day and night. Neither the column of cloud by day nor the column of fire by night ever left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to the Israelites. Let them turn about and camp before fire. Love you, Gable. <laughs> Let them turn and camp before Pi-Hesaris, uh, Pi before Midigal, Migdal, and C. Camp in front of Balsephon, just opposite of the sea. Pharaoh would then say, the Israelites are wandering about aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has closed in on them. I will so harden Pharaoh's heart that he will pursue them. I thus, thus I will receive glory through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. This the Israelites did. When it was reported to the king of Egypt that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart about the people. What in the world have we done? They said. We have released Israel from our service. So Pharaoh harnessed his chariots and, chariots and took his army with him. He took 600 select chariots and all the chariots of Egypt, with officers on, on, on all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites while they were going out in triumph. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen, and his army, and caught up with them as they lay in camp by the sea at Pihethras, in front of crossing the Red Sea. Now Pharaoh was near when the Israelites looked up and saw the Egyptians had set out after them. Greatly frightened, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. To Moses they said, Were, were there no burial places in Egypt that you brought us here to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Did we not tell you this is Egypt when we said, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? Far better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses answered to people, Do not fear. Stand your ground and see the victory the Lord will win for you today. For these Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to keep still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to set out and you lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and split it in two. The Israelites may pass through the sea on dry land, but I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that you will go on after them. And I will receive glory through Pharaoh and his army, his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. When I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and horse, his horsemen, the angel of God 
has been leading Israel's army now moved and went around behind them, behind them. And the column of cloud moving from the front of them took up its place behind them, so that it came between the Egyptians' army and that of Israel. And when it became dark, the cloud illuminated, illumined, illumined the night. And so the rival camps did not come any closer all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the, the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind all night long and turned the sea into dry ground. The waters were split so that the Israelites entered into the midst of the sea on dry land. With the water as a wall to their right and to their left. Route of the Egyptians. The Egyptians followed and pursued after them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen, into the midst of the sea. But during the watch, just before dawn, the Lord looked down from a column of fiery cloud upon the Egyptians' army and threw them and threw it into a panic. And he so clogged their chariot wheels that they could drive only with difficulty. But the Egyptians said, Let us flee from Israel, because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may flow back upon the Egyptians, upon the chariots and their, horse, their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea returned to its normal flow. The Egyptians were fleeing head on toward, toward it when the Lord cast the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. As the water flowed back, it covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of its, of its covered the chari chariots and horsemen. Of all Pharaoh's army, which had fo followed the Israelites into the sea, not even one escaped. But the Israelites had walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, with the water as a wall to their right and to their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel on the that day from the power of Egypt. When Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the, she on the seashore and saw the great power the Lord had shown against Egypt, the people feared the Lord. They believed in the Lord and in Moses, his servant. Okay, thank you so much to the readers. Um, <clears throat> so to go over chapter 13 real quick, uh, just a couple of things I wanted to point out was, and I've, I've I've mentioned this before. It says that, you know, God swore to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. Okay, this is a symbol of the of the promised land, which is to come, right? However, when we get officially to the miracle of the manna from heaven, they will refer to the taste of the manna as um, wafers made with honey. So what that shows us is that while in the Exodus, while out in the desert, they're going to have a foretaste of this promised land through the miracle of the manna. So what that means for us Catholics today is that every time we wear a mass, we understand that, you know, heaven and earth meet. And when we commune, when we receive our Lord, we're getting a foretaste of this heavenly promised land that is to come. And that essentially would be, you know, this heavenly liturgy that John describes in the book of Revelation. And ultimately the, 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 the feast of the lamb at the end of ages. And so that is what we're getting a foretaste of. Another thing was what I mentioned yesterday was the unleavened bread. Um, here's an, ex an explicit mention of, you know, you're not to have leavened bread and they're supposed to have this festival. Um, and so right here in verse eight, it says, 
on that day, you will explain to your son, this is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It will be like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead. Um, but again, this is talking about people who are hundreds of years removed from the events, speaking as though they themselves lived it. So what does this ultimately mean is in this way, the original deliverance affected by the Passover is not a one-time event. And it, that ends with the dawn of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, but is rather an event that is continually made present each year to subsequent generations as a memorial celebration. That's the same thing with the mass. It's not just the one-time event that happened over 2,000 years ago. It's something that we relive at every Catholic Mass. And it's not just the Last Supper. Again, it's also um, the sacrifice of the cross. Um, and so it's not a, an, a, a big uh, objection to our practice of the Mass. As, as Protestants say, we re-sacrifice uh, Jesus. But in fact, that's not the case at all. Um, we're reliving that event. Jesus is offering his sacrifice once for all, and it's just made present again. This is what Katie's talking about in, in the group chat. So, in fact, the Jews had this practice where they themselves were reliving these events. Um, except for them, they were sacrificing, you know, the, the lambs all over again. They were having the unleavened bread and all that. But that's just not the case. Um, they, they had to re-sacrifice the lambs, but they believed that they were participating in some spiritual sense with the original Passover. And that's the exact same thing that, that we Catholics partake of when we go to Mass. Um, let me see. Um, a sign on your hand and on your forehead so that the teaching of the Lord will be on your lips with strong hand. Um, I'm not too sure what that's referencing. Exodus 13.9. I, I do know that... Um, I, I think they might actually use this for um, Ash Wednesday, if I'm not mistaken. But I want to say the the Jews wore um, not like not like a headband, but some some kind of symbol on their forehead, um, and that was their sign. But we today have you know the sign of the Christian, the mark of the Christian, you know, like the mark of the beast. That Revelation talks about, we have also the mark of the Christian. And for us, that's quite literally just the sign of the cross. So um, I want to make note that it's a very powerful prayer, the sign of the cross. Many times we just, you know, we do it real quick before we bless our food or before we say any prayer in general. But the sign of the cross to early Christians, they they would do it before they did anything. And they they knew that, you know, God's protection was with them, that they were not alone. And it was something they, they took very seriously. They would even take special care to do the sign of the cross slowly, never in a rush. And I feel like that's something beautiful that we should bring back. Um, we should we should continue that idea of the sign of the cross that from long ago, just the importance of it. Um, and yeah, as Maxwell says, the sign of the cross makes hell tremble. Yeah, because that's the mark of the Christian. They're affirming their belief in God. Um, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Uh, and so that, that would be for the Exodus 13. Uh, and then, well, they, they're now escaping towards the Red Sea. Uh, Moses parts the Red Sea, right? I just want to um, call to mind a couple things from uh, the book of Genesis. Just some themes 
you have the blowing of the wind or spirit of God over the waters of the deep at creation. Likewise, the spending of the sea recalls the division of the waters on the second day in Genesis 1 and 6, where God divides, you know, the, the dry ground from the waters. Um, the Israelites walk on this dry land. Um, and so you see these sort of parallels between creation and Genesis. It's almost like this is a, a new creation um, because they're, they're being reborn in a sense, being made free. Um, and, you know, they're being liberated from Egypt. And so the, the tradition of the church has um, brought to mind this idea of comparing baptism to crossing the Red Sea. Um, and uh, it's first attested in the writings of uh, St. Paul when he says to the Corinthians, I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same supernatural food and all drank the same supernatural drink. Um, so he's referring again to the miracle of manna and it's just so explicit there 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 through 2 how he compares you know the crossing of the Red Sea as this sort of baptism this new creation that the Israelites are going through um, so that's a really beautiful thing uh, there's also St. Cyril of Jerusalem who um, mentions uh, says here Moses might lead forth and afflicted people out of Egypt here that Christ might rescue those who were oppressed in the world under sin. There the tyrant was pursuing that ancient people even to the sea, and here the daring and shameless spirit, the author of evil, was following thee even to the very streams of salvation. The tyrant of old was drowned in the Red Sea, and this present one disappears in the, disappears in the waters of salvation. So that just really attests to just how powerful baptism is, and how very present this idea is in the life of the church. And... Um, the, the importance of baptism and baptismal regeneration and such. Um, and so the church fathers have a typological understanding of Christian baptism in relation to the exodus from Egypt. Um, and so this was their most uh, popular understanding of baptism in the writings of ancient Christianity. Um, but in any case, you see, Again, the tying it back to Genesis, those themes of, you know, the spirit of God moving on the waters. And then here you have the spirit of God separating the waters. God divides uh, the waters from the land. And so he does the same here, dividing the waters so that Israelites can pass through. And it's just it's all connected from the very beginning up until, you know, the time of Christ and even into these present days. And, you know, the life of the church in between these past thousand years. Um, so it's all very present and, you know, very, very beautiful. Uh, are there any questions? Um, that that verse that I mentioned was one Corinthians chapter ten, verse one through two. And I believe uh, that is also the passage where you'll read um uh further on in that same passage, it says it's not the cup which we bless um a, tr a participation in the blood of Christ is not the bread which we break participation in the body of christ and the uh, corinthians uh 10 and 11 are very explicit about just how serious um the eucharist is but of course we'll get to that in due time um so now we're going to start with job chapter 32 and we have this mysterious character elu and his speeches they're going to be for the next i think four or five chapters
Uh, but let's see what he has to say in this first chapter. Whenever you're ready, Jimena, feel free to read. Eliu rebukes Job Christ. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Eliu, son of Bartol, the Bezuit of the family of Ram, became angry. He was angry at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He had he has he was angry also at Job's three friends because he had found no answer. So he was declared Job to be in being the wrong. Now Eliu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. But he but when Eliu saw that th that that there were no answer in in the mouths for these three men. Now Eliu waited Job he waited to speak to Job because he they were older than he. But when Eliu saw that he w was no answer in the mouths of these three men, he became angry. Eliu saw that Barshold Son of Bar Bartel, the Bezuit answered, I am young in years, and you are aged. Throughout I have timid and afraid, I declared my opinion to you. I said, Let day speak, and let my years wisdom. But truly is it spirit to my mortal. The, the breath is the mighty, the makes for understanding. It is not old that are wise, nor the aged that understand what is right. Therefore I say, listen to me. Let also declare my opinion. See, I waited for your words. I listened for the wise sayings. While you searched out what to say, I gave you my attention. But there was, a, in fact, no one that confute Job. No one among you that answered his words. Yet do not say, we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a human. That is not directed his words against me. And I will answer him with, with your speeches. There are they smayed, they answer no more. They have no word to say that I am to weigh because they do not speak. Because they stand there and answer no more. I also give my answer. I will declare my opinion, for I am full of words, and spirit within me and constrains me. My heart is indeed like wine with no vent, like new wineskins in the ready to burst. I must speak so I that I am find relief. I must open my lips and answer, and I'm, I will not show partially any person or flattery towards anyone, for I do not know how to flatter, or make, or my maker, what spoon but the end at me to me. Awesome, thank you. So this chapter we have just this mysterious character that comes in. His name's Elio. Okay, so and we see that he's angry both at Job and at his friends. 
his reason for being angry with Job, because up until now, Job's been, you know, this he's been this just man. He hasn't really done anything wrong and all the suffering, you know, uh, one could say he did not deserve. Um, however, uh, two chapters ago, two, three chapters ago, he sort of makes this plea to God, like, here, come acquit me. I, I'm innocent. And um, Ilya makes notice of that. And um, he says, I will not level God with man. In essence, saying that, you know, God, that uh, Job, put himself on the level with God by a manner that sort of he just assumed that um, he could speak to God as though he were some kind of equal. Um, and in the following verse, he says, for I know not how long I shall continue and whether after a while my maker may take me away. Um, referring to rather his fear of punishment for such an attempt, right? And so what's, what's important to note is that he's mad at both Job and his friends. The reason he's mad at his friends Job's friends is because they can't refute Job's all of Job's arguments. And so here he comes in, blasting both of them, basically. And then he starts boasting of himself. He says, okay, I'm younger. So I was, you know, I was being nice and I let you guys talk and I waited till you finished. So now I'm going to talk. I have this wisdom that I will impart is what he's saying. And so um, that's just his opening speech. And so we'll see more what he has to say in the following chapter. Um, and then which, which will just be him condemning Job for Job asserting his innocence. Um, the, I think there'll be another chapter of him condemning Job as well. And then he'll turn his attacks towards Job's friends and their judgment of his friend. And, th and them not being able to um, prove to Job that he did something wrong, in essence. Uh, and so that's pretty much it. Are there any questions thus far of... Anything we've read, Exodus, Job. Um, if not, we can jump straight into the gospel. Okay, it's uh, Mark chapter 4. And again, a lot of the parables we've went over in Matthew, we'll see again in Mark. If I think of something new that wasn't added, um, I'll be sure to just try and plug that back in. Um, but as we go along, there are some... Uh, parables that are unique and we'll start to see that different aspects and such but okay continuing mark chapter four it's the parable of the sower on another occasion he began to teach by the sea a very large crowd gathered around him so that he got into a boat on the sea and sat down and the whole crowd was beside the sea on land and he taught them at length in parables and in the course of his instruction he said to them hear this a sower went out to sow and as he sowed some seed fell on the path and the birds came and ate it up other seed fell on rocky ground where it had little soil. It sprang up at once because the soil was not deep. And when the sun rose, it was scorched and withered for lack of roots. Some seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it produced no grain. And some seed fell on rich soil and produced fruit. It came up and grew and yielded 30, 60, and 100 fold. He added, whoever has ears to hear ought to hear. Um, so in this parable, uh, basically, you know, these are different types of people who you know, hear the word of God, and there's people that just completely ignore it. There's people that um, sort of, you know, they take the word of God in, but they have no roots. They have no real deep deepening within it. And so, you know, they'll, they'll fall away. Uh, and they have those that do have deep roots, and they yield fruit. Um, not 30, but 60 or 100-fold fruit, you know. Uh, it's those people. Think of the saints. Think of Padre Pio and his ministry, how he brought so many people back to the faith, 
how he had so many conversions from different faiths, all by his faith. It was the faith that they saw in him, you know, working. He was showing them, you know, the love of Christ. He was living the good life as God calls us to live. And so it was through that that he produced more fruit. Um, and so that's something beautiful to meditate on. Another thing is to think about the sower. He seems almost careless or reckless with the seeds that he's throwing. He doesn't seem to care where he's throwing them. You know, because some lands on the on the ground and it just gets scorched. Some gets eaten by the birds, you know. But, and so some people would say that, okay, this sower is careless. But another way to look at it and to flip it even is that this sower is giving. He's throwing seeds out in an abundance. So to show just how giving he is. And it's very similar to, you know, how Christ is. And because it's exactly what it's referring to. Christ is ultimately so giving. Um, I was meditating upon a book of Padre Pio and how uh, Jesus' cries in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. Padre Pio mentioned how, you know, Jesus knew not everyone's going to be saved. But he still went through with this sacrifice that infinitely atones because that shows that he infinitely gives. He is so gracious and so giving. And that's exactly what he does um, there on the cross. He infinitely gives. And so his meditation was what Jesus would have seen there in the garden while he's lamenting, while he's sweating blood. He's so nervous. He's so scared. Um, he's in so much pain that, you know, he sees these people that are going to be tormenting, being tormented in hell. But he still gives himself, himself freely, even for them. He does so with the hope that people do come to the knowledge of truth. Because God desires that all come to the knowledge of the truth of the kingdom. And that, that's just something beautiful to think about, just how giving God as the sower is. Um, and so it continues here in verse 10. And when he was alone, um, oh, one last thing. A lot of atheists would like to attack is like, oh, well, God knows us so well. Why doesn't he just, you know, show all of us that he's real? Why do you got to risk sending us to hell? Well, th we're about to figure out the purpose of Jesus teaching in parables because people, they twist the scriptures to their own demise. They twist things to their own demise. And it's far worse for those who know and then twist it for those who know and reject it than for those who are ignorant. And so he's both helping those who have the eyes to see and he says here whoever has ears to hear ought to hear it and so that's very very important because it's those people who are supposed to go out make disciples of all nations baptizing in the name of the father son and the holy ghost he very clearly teaches that um and so that's why he teaches in parables to both conceal the mysteries of the kingdom but reveal them to those who have the ears to hear who have the eyes to see you know there, there's many times where you can think of um atheists just claiming oh God did this and this and this. But like you're a Google search away, bro, of figuring out what the context is. You know, you're, you're, you're being complacent. You're choosing not to search that up. You know, that's, that goes back to, you know, how Pharaoh hardened his heart. In a similar sense, those people were hardening their hearts. Um, and so uh, Katie says here, the Jews thought the Messiah would free them from the people who had power over them. So a, a political leader as God could have just freed them that way but he didn't he freed them from sin the most evil thing that has had power over us and not just the jews but all people even though he knew not all would be saved he still did the thing that would save them god didn't have to die for us he could have just did what the jews were expecting 
Um, and yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. That ties into to exactly what I'm saying. That you know, salvation was for the Jews. They rejected it, and so he's so giving. He opens salvation to the world, right? Um, and yeah, he he's he's not doing what we expect. He doesn't do what we expect because he has higher expectations than us. That, and that's in essence a lot of what the story of Job goes into is that we don't understand how God works. And the fact that we try to is, is a problem. We shouldn't try to. We should just have faith in God. But it's not a blind faith where, you, where you're just ignorant. It's a reasonable faith where you believe in someone. So think of a husband and a wife. A husband has faith in his wife, but it's not a blind faith. He's known his wife for years. They've been married for years, dating for years. He has that faith in her. It should be a very similar thing. And that's why, um, you know, it's a beautiful thing that Protestants are really um, emphasizing is having this relationship with Jesus. You know, a lot of times we have, sadly, these Sunday Catholics that just go through the motions. And so that's really a problem. And we went over this earlier in Matthew um, a couple of days ago, how you need to have that relationship with Jesus or he will tell you, I do not know you. He will bar you from entering into the kingdom. You need to have that relationship. And it's, it's very important. Um, and so now Jesus is going to explain the purpose of the parables. And so in verse 10, it says, and when he, he was alone, these present along with the 12 questioned him about the parables. He answered the mystery of the kingdom of God has been granted to you, but to those outside, everything comes in parables so that they may look and see, but not perceive hear and listen, but not understand in order that they may not be converted and be forgiven. Jesus said to them, do you not understand this parable? Then how will you understand any of the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones on the path where this word is sown. As soon as they hear, Satan comes at once and takes them away from the word sown in them. And these are the ones who sow the rocky ground who, when they hear the word, receive it and at once with joy. But they have no root. They last only for a time. Then when tribulation or persecution comes because of the world, they quickly fall away. Those sown among thorns are another sort. They are the people who hear the word, but worldly anxiety, the lure of riches, and the craving for other things intrude and choke the word, and it bears no fruit. But those sown on rich soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30 and 60 and 100 fold. So there you have it. He explicitly says that he's trying to conceal the mysteries, but at the same time reveal it. And it's very important because it's far worse for someone. And, and, and you know, this is a teaching is that somebody who's invincibly ignorant may still be saved, right? Um, and it's far worse for them to look and read and understand and then reject it as far as them just having never heard of it. You know, Jesus himself says, you know, had I not told you, you would not have sinned. So it's very important to keep those things in mind at how, you know, it, it's a beautiful thing. We're all here. We're all so blessed to be Catholic. We're also blessed to be baptized in a part of the church and God willing practicing, you know, praying our rosaries, going to confession. However, the punishment is much greater for us because we know more. But, and here's the good thing, through our growing in sanctification, through our living a Christian life, God's giving us more grace to sustain us. And we clearly see as in the parable of the sower, he is so giving. And so that's very important. So him to who has more, more will be given, right? But to him who has less, even less will be given. So it's important that as you continue to grow in your relationship with Christ, as you continue to grow in faith, know that whenever you sin, 
after learning so much more, after deepening your relationship, it's so much worse the punishment, which is why repentance is so important. And don't, don't, don't fear so much because you have to have that faith in Christ that he will forgive you. Of course, don't, don't presume that, oh, I can sin and God will forgive me. Um, you're human. You, you will fall and that's okay. But the purpose is for you to rely on Christ, to depend entirely on him. Um, Katie brings up the idea that if a Catholic goes to hell, they get the worst of it. Yeah, everything's in a hierarchy. Um, you're Catholic. You know, you've been given such a grace to be a part of the church. People are born on the other side of the world, never hear of Jesus. You get to have that gift of knowing him here on earth. That is such a privilege. Like that should really humble us because that is such a gift that we did not earn. We can never understand. But it's just such a beautiful thing. And even more so, if you if you continue, as I say, you grow in your faith. If you sin, the, you, you will reap what you sow if you go and repent it. You, you need to understand that. But also, as you continue to grow, you will be provided more grace. You will be given the grace necessary to sustain you. So, but you've got to have that faith in Christ. You really got to live as though your life depends on him. Um, and, and that's very important. Um, and so Gabriel asked, what happens to people that never get to hear of Jesus in their life? Well, Paul teaches us that, um, you know, the, the law of God is written on their hearts. You know, everybody has a conscience. St. John Henry Newman says that the conscience is the aboriginal vicar of Christ in our soul. So whenever you do something good and you're in silent, you're by yourself, nobody sees you. And you feel that good sense like, hey, I did something good inside you. That's your conscience. John Henry Newman, St. John Henry Newman is saying that that is your direct link to Christ. And everybody has that. Um, even unbaptized people. And that, that would be the, the, the natural law, as Trey mentions. And so those people who live their lives according to this sort of natural law that's written on our hearts, um, they may still be saved. And this is, this is something that's just been understood. Of course, that is not a reason at all to be like, oh, well, let's just not evangelize them then. They'll be fine. No, the sin lies on you if you, if you neglect to do your duty. Jesus is very clear, make disciples of all nations. And so if you're not doing your, the mission he sent you out to do, then that's definitely a problem. Um, so while we, we have reasonable hope, you know, that our Lord will be merciful to those who never heard of Christ. Um, of course, it's the teaching of the church of people who are invincibly ignorant. Um, this dates back even before Vatican II, um, that those people may still be saved. Um, and so we, we have that faith. They may have that baptism of desire, you know, this desire to want to be with God, although they don't fully understand. Think also of Paul in Athens. Um, they had all these gods there, right? But they had a statue to the unknown God. And so Paul says, essentially, I revealed, I come to reveal to you who this unknown God is. It's Jesus Christ. And that he preaches the gospel to them. So in a similar sense, they were following that sort of natural law, although they had never heard the gospel. Um, that's just a couple of things to think about. And so, um, continuing on, verse 21, he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be placed under a bushel basket or under a bed, not to be placed on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden except to be made visible, nothing is secret except to come to light. Anyone who has ears to hear ought to hear. There he says it again. He also told them, Take care what you hear. The measure with which you measure will be measured out to you, and still more will be given to you. That's what I've been saying. And so one who has more will be given, 
and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Um, so essentially that, and we're, and we're called to be, you know, that lamp on the lampstand. We're not supposed to be hidden with our faith. You know, we're supposed to be out there. We're supposed to live the example. Um, one of the teachings of the Second Vatican Council was to the laity, us, we're to sanctify the public space. How do we do that? Simply by living the good Christian life that Christ calls us to live. Be the saints. Be the people God calls us to be. That's how you sanctify the public space. And yeah, there's a lot of problems in the world. But if you continue to live your faith, you're, you're moving those mountains. You know, you're uprooting those trees, replanting them in the ocean. And that's in your faith in Christ. That's by God's grace. And so it's very important. Moving on to verse 26, it says, um, he said that, he said, this is how it is with the kingdom of God. It is as if a man were to scatter seed on the land and would sleep and rise night and day and the seed would sprout and grow. He knows not how. Of its own accord, the land yields fruit, first the blades, then the ear, then the full grain in the air. And when the grape is ripe, he wields the sickle at once, for the harvest has come. So this is a small parable. Essentially, um, it speaks to the mystery of, you know, the growth of the seed. And so what's, what's so beautiful in that is that that goes back to God. That's God working through all that. That's, that's him who we have this faith in him. And he's the one, you know, um, that works through all this and it's this mystery uh that we don't understand it says the earth produces of itself but we understand that's the power of god working and so think of the the catholic church it was 12 disciples we don't understand the mystery to how it's now 1.2 billion people in the world it's such a miracle it's such a mystery this growth we don't understand it and so he continues and this is a familiar passage we've been over before, the, the parable of the mustard seed. Um, however, it's a, I'm going to cover a couple of things that are a little different. It says here in verse 30, he said, to what shall we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable can we use for it? It is like a mustard seed that when it is sown in the ground is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. But once it is sown, it springs up and becomes the largest of plants and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the sky can dwell in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to understand it. Without parables, he did not speak to them, but it was his disciples. He explained everything in private. So, okay, I want to I want to draw on a couple of things. Um, um, just to reiterate what I mentioned earlier, uh, Jesus speaks in parables precisely to conceal the secrets of the kingdom from those who are hard of heart, blind of sight, and deaf of hearing. So the parables have a kind of paradoxical function. They both reveal the mysteries of the kingdom to the disciples and conceal the kingdom to those whose hearts are hardened against Jesus. Uh, that was one last thing I wanted to just reiterate. And so um, just a little background here is that the Jews had this longstanding tradition of what was known as the cedar tree. And it was a, a, a giant tree. It was huge. And... Um, it was stated that they grew like over 130 feet tall. It, it was a, it was a massive tree, um, and so let's. I'm going to go ahead and read here a passage from Ezekiel 17. It's really short. It says, "This is what the Sovereign Lord says: I myself would take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and plant it. I will break off a tender spring from its out topmost shoots, 
planted on high and lofty mountain. On the mountain's heights of Israel, I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. All the trees of the forest will grow. All the trees of the forest will know that I, the Lord, bring down the tall tree and make the low tree grow tall. I bring up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. The Lord has spoken. I will do it. So the purpose of this, I bring this in just to highlight, you know, the importance of the cedar. But also this was a prophecy of, you know, the coming of the kingdom. And so God says that from the cedar, and just to give you a little more backdrop on the cedar, it was this symbol of power. It was this symbol of, you know, great wealth. Uh, it, it was just a, a big sign of something very powerful. So before I get back into Ezekiel uh, 17, I'm going to jump real quick to Ezekiel 3. So this is a parable, or no, this is uh, a reference to the, king of, the kingdom of Egypt. Okay. And so just listen to what it has to say. Who can be compared with you in majesty? Consider Assyria, once a cedar in Le Lebanon, with beautiful branches overshadowing the forest, is towered on high, its top above the thick foliage, the waters nourish it, deep springs make it grow tall, their streams flowered all around its base and sent their channels to all the trees of the field, so it towered higher than all the trees of the field, it, it bows increased and its branches grew long, spreading because of the abundant waters all the birds of the sky nested in its boughs all the animals of the wild gave birth under its branches all the great nations lived in its shade it was it was majestic in beauty with its spreading boughs for its roots went down to abundant waters the cedars and the garden of god could not rival it nor could the junipers equal to its boughs so yeah there you have it uh ezekiel makes it very clear um in this writing about egypt how Big and how massive this kingdom was, what a sign it was for the cedar, what a sign the cedar was for the people of how big and important. And so what Jesus is saying in this prophecy from Ezekiel, or what Ezekiel is saying in this prophecy, is that at the time of the coming of the kingdom, from the top of a cedar, a branch he will pluck, he will plant on top of a mountain, and there it will grow, this huge tree. So if you're a Jew and you understand the symbolism of the cedar, you understand, um, you know, just the power and the majesty of it, all that. Um, you see all those things. Now let's reread what he says in Mark about the mustard seed. The, the Jews would expect, as he says, to what shall we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable can we use for it? Well, they're thinking, okay, Ezekiel has already compared it. Ezekiel said, you know, the kingdom of God is like this cedar tree that the, just the tiny part is taken off and it grows into a big mountain. It's placed on a mountain and it grows huge. You know, Ezekiel's already, so they're thinking, oh, he's going to say a cedar. The cedar is the, is the power, is the true symbol of strength and majesty. But what does he say? He says a mustard seed, which is a small seed, but it grows into the largest of plants, the largest of bushes, essentially, which can only grow up to, I think, about 10 feet tall. Not that big. So what is Jesus saying here? What is he revealing? Well, he's revealing, and much to what Katie mentioned earlier, the Jews had this expectation, and that's what Jesus is showing here. This mystery of the kingdom of God, it's not amounting to the, to the cedar expectation that they have, but there is something mysterious to it there's something beautiful to it in the fact that 
it starts as this beautiful seed and it grows into this giant bush. Another thing to draw on is that Jesus is, is showing that, you know, the church, the kingdom of God, the church, it doesn't have this political power. It doesn't have, you know, all this land and all these different things um, that these huge kingdoms had, where they had all this, this huge power politically, this huge um, influence on people, this kind of worldly power. You know, the kingdom of God, different. The kingdom of God is mysterious. And so the kingdom of God is like this mustard seed. And to tie it back to that previous parable of the seed, how it grows, well, it grows on its own. No one knows how. He, not, he knows not how. But we understand it's through the power of God. It's from that, that little tr twig that was taken off from the cedar that was replanted on that, on that mountain that grew into a huge tree. We understand that that's by the power of God, the 12 apostles. It was just 12. Now we have 1.2 billion. That's the power of God. And the, the kingdom of God is very much like that. It's mysterious. It's not like, you know, the kingdoms of the world. It's very different. And so just to, since I already mentioned uh, the Second Vatican Council, I'll, I'll draw from Lumen Gentium. And so uh, this is what they say about the kingdom of heaven and, you know, the church. Christ inaugurated the kingdom of heaven on earth and revealed to us the mystery of that kingdom. By his obedience, he brought about redemption, the church, or in other words, the kingdom of Christ, now present in mystery, grows visibly through the power of God in the world. And this ties perfectly into what we just read about, about the mustard seed and about the, the seed that grows, but no, we, don't, we know not how. And it's, of course, it's, it's a beautiful mystery. And so sadly, our Protestant brothers and sisters don't see, you know, the, the church as, you know, the kingdom of God. You know, this is the, the church militant. And then um, you have, the, you know, the church triumphant in heaven. And this is still all the kingdom of God. Um, and so there it is, just beautifully. It's present here on earth. The kingdom of God is present here on earth, shrouded in mystery. No, not how. We know not how it grows. And that, that's essentially what Christ is teaching here. It's not like the other worldly kingdoms that the Jews were expecting. He, Jesus is not this earthly political Messiah that they wanted. The kingdom of God is different. The kingdom of God has true divine power. It has mysterious power that far outweighs that of the other worldly kingdoms who at the time wished that this did not grow. You have the Romans, you have the Jews. They have their own sort of kingdoms. And they certainly did not want these 12 to grow. But that's exactly what happened. It's all a mystery. It's by the grace of God. It's by the power of God. And so to continue on verse 35. On that day, as evening drew on, he said to them, Let us cross to the other side, leaving the crowd. They took him with them in the boat just as he was, and the other boats were with him. A violent squall came up, and waves were breaking over the boat so that it was already filling up. Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up, rebuked the wind, the sea, said, Quiet, be still. The wind ceased, and there was great calm. Then he asked them, Why are you terrified? Do you not yet have faith? They were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this whom even the wind and the sea obey? So this is a beautiful parable here, it's a little, or rather story. 
it's a beautiful story here of what our you know day-to-day lives of the Christian are. We struggle, you know, we're in that boat and there's winds and waves and everything's going crazy and nothing feels right. <laughs> Yo, you're forgetting something. Jesus is in the boat with you. He's chilling in the stern. He's asleep on a cushion. He's not worried. Well, he's God, but he's with you. So you shouldn't be worried because he's God. And so many times we, we think that we're by ourselves in that boat, but Jesus is with us. And yeah, Katie, that's beautiful. You know, the boat of the pandemic, the boat of mental illness, the boat of physical illness, whatever it may be, Jesus is in that boat with you. The boat of stress. Jesus is in that boat with you. And that's very, very true. And so while you're going through all these things, know that, yeah, even, even the Biden boat to an extent with, uh, with the issues of, you know, the pro-life um, side of things. You know, these, these are definitely issues. But moving through this administration, a lot of us didn't want Biden, of course, not to get too political, but we got to understand Jesus is in the boat with us. So thank you, Trey. Yeah, for sure. Jesus is in that boat with you. He's not abandoned you. But think also, what does he do? This man exercises power over the wind and the sea. These forces of nature that are so grandeur, we don't even understand. But he has complete power and complete control over them. He's asleep in the boat, not batting an eye at them. And what does he say? What does he say to them? Why are you scared? Do you not yet have faith? And he's not talking about, hey, do you not believe in me yet? Because at this point in time, Jesus has already done miracles. They have more than enough intellectual assent. More than enough. Yeah, Jesus is pretty amazing. This guy can, you know, cure people and cast out demons. This, this guy's it. They, they can think that. I'm sure all of you can think that. But what's deeper is the faith. It's not just some intellectual assent. It's truly this dependency, this entire reliance on God. I know for a fact, had they just a second earlier be like, Jesus, can you do something? He would, because he can. In a similar sense, he let them. He allowed it in his providence. He allowed it to happen for them to be terrified and to be scared. Because he knew he was going to rebuke the winds. He knows he has power. He's sleeping. He's not worried about it. He's God. And so it ties back to your faith. Having that faith in Christ. You know, that dependency on Christ, that reliance on him. Being humble enough to accept that, hey, I can't do it. But that's okay. Because Jesus can. And he's in the boat with you. So you don't got to worry about fighting off the winds and the waves. You got to worry about having faith in Jesus. And again, it's not an intellectual ascent, but a total dependency upon him. And so who then is this whom even the wind and the sea obey? Who is it? Well, it's God. It's so crazy to think. So mysterious. So amazing. That the infinite God of the universe is with every single one of you. With every single one of us. In our boat. Who's the one that can control the wind and the waves? Well, God. And he's right there with you.
Are there any questions about anything we've read so far? You can unmute, type in chat. If not, then 